You're listening to a podcast from the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference. The 8th Annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at Queen's University Belfast in August 2018. The conference was generously supported by the School of History, Anthropology, Philosophy and Politics, the School of Arts, English and Languages and the Institute of Irish Studies, all at Queen's University Belfast and by Marsh's Library. As in previous years, the majority of papers were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, in association with HistoryHope.ie. There are now more than 200 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences freely available. To access this archive, go to HistoryHope.ie forward slash podcasts or visit TudorStuartIreland.com. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Dr. Helen Sonner entitled David Beers Quinn, Public Historian. Insights from the Quinn Papers in the Library of Congress. As Brian said, um, uh, I did, did my PhD here at Queen's. I ended up answering, at least to my satisfaction and the examiner's satisfaction, a question that uh, David Quinn first asked in, in print in 1943. He asked, when did the English language start using the word plantation as shorthand for colon- uh, what we would call colonial settlement? And then when he retired from his academic, his full-time academic career in 75, um, he noted that the question was still unresolved. And um, uh, it, it's interesting. So it was, a, it, was a, it was a topic of interest to him throughout his career. And as far as I know, he never found a satisfactory answer. Um, so after finishing the PhD, I moved to uh, Washington. And about a year ago, I realized that Quinn had left all his papers to the Library of Congress. So much like Lorna, um, on what might be a bad decision, I thought I'll go over and look at the Quinn papers and see if there's anything in there that he didn't publish about his consideration of that issue. Um, I didn't know what I was getting into. Uh, In some ways, it's been an incredibly productive experience. Um, Although my thesis took issue with several of Quinn's conclusions, his scholarship was central to my research, and it has been an honor to be able to learn from him yet again a chance to see um, uh, how he worked, not just what he published. Um, but it's been difficult not to get overwhelmed because the collection is you know, huge, and it's actually very unwieldy. Um, uh, nevertheless, in this era of measuring research impact, Quinn's work as a public historian provides an intri- intriguing case study. Um, so today I'm going to share just some of the documents from the Quinn papers. I'm still in the midst of it. I'm not anywhere finished uh, with the issues I'm interested in. But, but at the end, I'm going to conclude with some brief prepared remarks about public receptions of the Quinn theory of Tudor Ireland as the crucible for English colonialism based on what I've seen in the, in the um, archive. So um, for those of you who don't know all the details of his life, I think everybody in this room has probably cited at least one of his papers. I think the Smith paper from '45. Uh, it is cited probably as much as any other um, article, uh, published article in the history. But the, the framework of his career that I wasn't really particularly aware of is that after a, a full academic career, he basically had a second academic career as an independent scholar. His retirement um, uh, uh, was the area where he was able to focus most on his research as opposed to his teaching and his academic um, uh, administrative duties. Uh, Nicholas Canney pointed that out in one of the uh, FET shifts that they did. Um, so these papers um, 
there, there's almost 60,000 items, uh, 167 boxes, um, five oversized boxes, six microphone reels, which I haven't looked at yet, but I think that he just purchased um, or got uh, copies of some of the microphone reels that had been done. I'm not sure there's anything distinct to Quinn in those. Um, but the biggest shock to me was that it, it uh, looks like there's been limited curation by Quinn himself. I think he just literally packed up his entire office and gave it to the Library of Congress. So this little thing you probably can't see, but that's because even if you could see it, you wouldn't know what it is. It's literally a little scrap of paper with a doodle on it of some sort where he's working something out. Um, probably, um, uh, it looks to me like it's either a... a geography or family relationships, I don't know which, but you'll find all kinds of this. I mean, it's literally like, you know, the, the kinds of notes we all have are boxed up and treated like archives. And I actually find that very interesting because I think that's one of the lessons most of us learn when we're working in archives is that what you contemporarily think is of no interest later becomes critically important. So I think Quinn just thought, I'm not going to risk it. There may be somewhere in the line... There's also significant ev evidence of frugality. Um, so here he is. This is what I think all of us have these in our in our notes. There's a list of uh, manuscripts, uh, the Hamilton manuscripts, where he's marked out different things he's interested in. But that's been written on the back of a program for a musical um, event here at Queens um, in 1942. Here's another one where he's calculating. Um, I think it's uh, the number of servitors or or expenses. I can't tell which from this uh, photograph. Um, from six, 19, I'm sorry, 1622, and that's on the back of an electioneering pamphlet from here, a brochure from here in Belfast. Um, all, I would say, close to 40% of these records are on that type of recycled paper, um, uh, which reflects, I think, the, the um, relative uh, austerity of the time he was working in. And this was one of the more touching uh, pieces. This is a letter from the Rylands Library. He had, you know, the, the other part that's clear to this is this is a scholar working before email and digitized um, archives. So everything he's getting, he's getting by writing to somebody and asking them, you know, to send him copies. So he had requested some photographs of some of the materials in the Rylands Library. And the keeper writes back, Dear Sir, I'm sorry, this is from 1944. Dear Sir, in reply to your letter of the 18th, I regret to say that it is not possible to comply with your request at present. Such has been the depletion of our staff through call-up for war service that our photographic studio will remain closed to the, for the duration of the war. Not only have our photographic assistants been called up, but also our keeper of manuscripts. Um, the, the, I haven't even gone into the files that are labeled by the Library of Congress as correspondence files, or they may have been labeled by Quinn as correspondence files, and it's, it's shocking how much correspondence is in every single folder. He is communicating with everybody he can to try and gather up the archives and the materials he's looking at. Um, yeah, I'm really sorry about the sun. I don't know that I would say that, have said that uh, earlier in the week. Um, but pre-Ebo, uh, uh, this is also a scholar working pre-Ebo, and for any of us who complain about the limitations of Ebo, this is um, uh, actual tiny little microfiche that one of the archives sent you find photographic printouts of microfiche. Um, one of the folders that I was really eager to see was labeled in the finding guide as um, plantation publications, plantation pamphlets. So I was eager to see, well, what is, what's Quinn got in there? And when you get to it, what it is is 
retyped uh, typesetting uh, that he himself have done. He's transcribed the pamphlets um, and then typed them himself. Um, amazing amount of work. <laughs> I guess I never really thought how often he had to do that in order to have his records of the text. Um, and the other thing that's noticeable is the textuality, I'm calling it, of scholarly production um, prior to the personal computer. Many of these files are literally his first, second, third, and fourth um, drafts, written and written over and over again, until he gets to a final one where he's cut, literally cut and pasted the different pages together. Now, I, I'm old enough to have done my undergraduate work. I did my undergraduate thesis on a typewriter, but the volume of what he's doing, handwritten, to get to a published article um, is actually quite shaming from, from my perspective, given the productivity he was able to do. Um, but for the uh, files there that reflect what I'm calling his uh, work as a public historian, one of the things that first got me interested in that as a topic about Quinn is that one of the very earliest of those files, now he has not labeled these as public history, but I have... Um, I'll call them that to distinguish between what he did for, for definitively academic audiences. And the first one starts in 1930 when he's still an undergraduate. He apparently is walking down the Malone Road here at Queens and noticed some uh, soil coloration differences at a building site and managed to get everybody very excited about uh, what they were finding there, which included some Neolithic uh, human remains as well as some pottery. So he, he, over the summer of 1930, he's, you know, in touch with uh, um, government uh, uh, officials here in Belfast, with the local Belfast Historical Society. Um, he's got his uh, archaeology tutor uh, in London doing work for him, and he ends up making a presentation. Um, uh, here he's gotten the approval to make the presentation um, and that they are interested in hearing from him about what he found. Um, this is an earlier letter. This is the letter where he was uh, requesting some support and interest in, in both the research and trying to get some of the research done before the building went up, um, as well as uh, his own plea for why he is the right person to do this. Um, in conclusion, I would say I am an undergraduate of Queens with a little experience and considerable enthusiasm for archaeology, and that I will endeavor to preserve all the data relevant to the find. And that um, enthusiasm, generally, for scholarship, but for archaeology in particular, is a theme of the archives I've seen so far um, that I might not have been as quite so familiar with just by reading his published historical work. Um, his account of the site and the, uh, the, 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 the... He got some newsprint after he made this presentation in November of 1930, um, there's a couple of articles in there. I picked this one, but I don't know which publication it's from because I haven't gone back into um, LexisNexis to try and find it, but I suspect it's Belt S. Telegraph or one of the ones here. Um, and the, the news report says, his account of the site and the relics discovered were copiously illustrated by lantern slides and lucidly explained in, in subsequent discussion, Mr. Quinn was highly eulogized for the careful and methodical manner in which he had pursued his investigation of one of the most important archaeological discoveries that had been recently made in Northern Ireland. Um, and I think that emphasis on uh, Quinn as a communicator, as well as Quinn's uh, interest in the visual representation of this research, again, is another theme that follows throughout his career. 
and especially his public historian work. The other interesting thing to me, uh, one of the things that found is this is a, looks to me like his working notes. It may have been for uh, funding or for an academic position. Looks like he's summarizing his uh, current understanding of uh, early. Uh, he, he, the header on it says some uh, features, some factors in early development of the British Empire. And what's interesting to me is he is already at 1935, so just you know five years after graduating as undergraduate, and 10 years before the Smith article, which I think defined this for all of us, he's already identified the government of Ireland in the 16th century as precedent for later system of colonial administration as central to um, his historical work. So that was a lot earlier than I would have expected that to have shown up as well. In, I, you know, I, I focused for this paper on looking at things that he presented as local historical societies or other public events. Um, but one of the most notable things that I found in the ones that I've seen so far, like I said, there's 60,000 items, but so far what's shocking is how um, absent, without leave maybe, that theory of Ireland as crucible of English colonialism is in these papers. And as an example of that, here's a, here's a, a lunchtime presentation he gave to the Historic Society of Lancashire um, titled The Elizabethans in Ireland, a Northern View. And I, would, I was fully expecting the Thomas Smith colony to have shown up in there, given that Liverpool was the staging point for it. And there's just no mention to it. It's kind of a summary of Irish cultural um, uh, uh, history in, in Elizabethan era. Um, and that kind of shows up over and over again. I mean, maybe it's my own emphasis, but I saw that as so central to Quinn's scholarship, and yet when he's on the public stage, it just doesn't seem to be mentioned unless it is the topic. And it's very, very rarely the topic. Most of his, his work is, is, uh, in a, on those public fields is either local hist history or um, colonial, uh, North American colonialism. But one of the more interesting papers that I found there is one that he gave to the Monmouthshire Local History Committee when he was at Swansea. Um, they were forming a, a local group, and they asked him to talk, and he gave a talk on the value and interest of local history. Um, and one of the most interesting aspects, I think, of this paper um, is that he uh, unambiguously identified local history and pro I would call professional academic history as a two-way street. And he's not giving this lip service. He very, um, uh, uh, there's, there's no patronizing aspect to local history in the way he's presented it. Um, he, he talks about how the local knowledge of local conditions has a way of, of countering the broader generalizations of historians who are looking at bigger picture, bigger picture. And that you, can, you need to rely on the local um, uh, knowledge if you're doing history that talks about that region even if you're a professional historian. And you see that again throughout the Quinn papers. You see him just networking. I mean, it's a word he wouldn't have used, but he networks and he meets people and he finds out what they know and they end up writing to him. It's really quite quite remarkable um, uh, aspect of his work. The other thing that was relatively interesting to me, not knowing too much about his personal career, is that his first engagement, I, I should step back, I'm from Norfolk, Virginia, which is right on the border of uh, Virginia and North Carolina. So we kind of swing both ways. We identify with Jamestown, but the Outer Banks is just an hour's drive south of us. It's where we go to the beach. 
Um, so uh, questions of you know, first English engagement in North America is very much a local history topic. Um, I would have grown up, I did grow up hoping that the lost colony was buried in my backyard, thanks to Quinn having publicized that he thought they came up to Norfolk, where Norfolk is today. Um, but his first expedition to, this is a, uh, a document he titled himself, First Expedition North Carolina Outer Banks, July 1948. You can see maybe it's written on what we would call in the U.S. a blue book. It's the examination paper that he's repurposed from somewhere. It's written in pencil. He's used every inch of the margin. It's the contemporary um, notes he took of, a, of what really was an expedition. Uh, he ended up with the Coast Guard taking him on a tour along the shifting sandbanks of the Outer Banks. And um, uh, uh, he wrote all his notes. He came back home and typed up a, a long journal about it. Um, I would say this element of what I've seen in there, I, I guess given my age, I've always kind of considered the search for the lost colony as something close to the search for El Dorado. You know, it's just an interesting topic, but nobody's ever going to find it. it. It seems clear that at some point Quinn really, for a long time, thought just maybe we'll find it. And he's being driven by that in a way that's not obvious from his published more academic work. Um, here he is, I'm sorry if you can't see it, uh, very sporty there on the Coast Guard cutter that took him all over, uh, thanks to, I think, the National Park Service in the U.S. helping him. I think these were contemporary notes he took over there when he um, uh, went, and it's his list of all the place names from the, from the documents of the um, uh, Roanoke colonies with him trying to match them up to actual locations that he's crossed through the ones that he can't find and check the ones that he can. Here's his uh, attempt to uh, sketch the, the old map of the... Um, Outer Banks against the, what he sees as the current shape of the uh, what's basically a habitated sandbar um, in, on the coast of North Carolina. And that work led to what is probably his um, most influential public scholarship. Um, the state of North Carolina, in the, starting in the late 70s and executed in the mid-80s, did just a massive... Um, extravaganza of marking what they call America's 400th anniversary um, about the Roanoke colonies as the beginning of U.S. history. Um, uh, and Quinn was um, uh, brought into the planning process and, and actively engaged in this work very um, significantly for a long time, a lot of different ways. Interestingly, in 2007, the state of Virginia used the exact same phrase, America's 400th anniversary, to commemorate the quadricentennial of Jamestown. Um, and I, it's more his, some of his mentees that ended up having a big influence, uh, Karen Kupperman in particular, um, on the Jamestown quadricentennial. But this regional rivalry is very much what's going on with the North Carolina. I don't, one of the... Um, Sayings in my part of the world is that North Carolina is a veil of humility between two peaks of conceit, meaning Virginia and South Carolina. So North Carolina's attempt to say we're the U.S. we're where the U.S. started, not not Jamestown and not um, uh, the, the the Pilgrims um, in New England. So Quinn's uh, uh, work in that is just way too varied to do in a 20-minute paper, even if that was the topic. 
But one of the, I think one of the biggest um, influences, if you go back to Quinn with those lantern slides when he was an uh, undergraduate, very early on he emphasized to the committee and to the people he was working with that the key thing is the pictures, meaning the John White paintings. And I think everybody here is probably familiar with the various editions that he helped get into, into print, um, a, a relatively affordable version with, with uh, Paul Holton and then an actual um, large-scale, full-size uh, kind of masterpiece text. This is his invitation to a contemporary event, part of that. Um, but these are the illustrations for those of you who aren't familiar. You've seen them. Um, they're everywhere that John White did on one of these Roanoke things. And they're, they're gorgeous. And in real life, they're, they're really spectacular. Um, here's the, the, that was the cover of his invitation for a, an event uh, that was actually held at the British Library, who owns the, the illustrations. Um, you can see the title on that one, the original title on that one is The Arrival of the Englishman in Virginia. And um, so that didn't get used in the North Carolina papers because Virginia is confusing if you're talking about North Carolina being the location. So they used the phrase, the arrival of the Englishman, but they used this illustration of what looks like almost a maypole with the English flag. Um, for uh, apparently the, the town of Mantio, which is close to the lost colony, um, uh, got had some arms developed. So they had their... Uh, unveiling of the arms as well as uh, community fish fry <laughs> that used the thing. Um, and that brings us to, I would say most people in the U.S. and you definitely see it in the news clips. Um, and here it is, somebody that probably would should know better. This is the John Carter Brown. It's a publication by the John Carter Brown Library. Quinn was, Quinn was perceived as himself the arrival of an Englishman. Oh, sorry. Uh, in... in um, in this public history, that his, his Quinn being having any Irish ties is not at all clear uh, in a U.S. context. So I'm going to make some very short final remarks. If we, the scholars who stand on Quinn's shoulders, feel that this matters, if we have a sense that it is important for there to be a wider understanding of the idea that Tudor Ireland was the crucible for Anglophone colonialism, and if we feel that there is historical importance to the fact that it was Jacobean Britain that succeeded, where Elizabethan England failed. Then our challenge is to find a way to overcome the rhetorical power of what the Roanoke Archive contains and what Quint helped to amplify in both scholarly and public forums, namely John White's breathtaking paintings, Walter Raleigh's classically inflected rhetoric, and Richard Hacklett's uncanny understanding of the power of early modern print. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. If you would like to access the archive of more than 200 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences, please go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts. All podcasts are freely available on iTunes and on SoundCloud. For more information on the annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference, visit the conference website at tudorstuartireland.com.